0: Luke and Kaylee of The Game Dev Show here, ready to smash out another great episode. Luke, how you doing, friend?
1: I'm good, my friend. I'm good. Great week, great uh, episode.
0: Good episode, yeah. We just finished up recording with Mark Simmons. What was your favorite part, Luke?
1: To be honest, like I, th- I enjoyed everything about it. Um, it was a pleasure, obviously, hearing his... Just his background and where he came from. He had the best university job ever. Great listen to that. And um, what he's trying to create a free jam. It was really interesting hearing what he's trying to do, like his objective. And yeah, incredibly talented guy. Yeah. What about you?
0: I think we may have uncovered an unknown niche of the games industry, which is games industry leaders who have backgrounds in physics. Mm. this is our fourth guest with a physics background
1: yeah it's weird as well because I think two of our guests have actually said that they just did a degree in physics because they wanted to stay in education
0: totally it was like a thing to do (laughs) yeah we'll have to conduct a study on that well once we fire the numeration team (laughs) yeah all right well let's get into the show well, do you want to start by maybe talking to us about what you were like growing up?
2: Well, I come from a um, council estate in England, so relatively deprived area. Went through just normal state school and everything, but um, no kind of special upbringing or anything like that. You know, often just fell out with my parents so much so that I ended up going to boarding school for a bit and studied there so it was just a pretty normal That's partly why I have this kind of Essex accent where we come from is pretty rough Essex so some of the bosses I've worked with in the past have nicknamed me the uh, Essex boy done good like this guy (laughs) who comes from this this rough town who's, who's found his way through to the echelons of the game industry
0: when did your kind of interest in games start do you remember that
2: i remember my granddad buying a zx80 and beginning with that because my granddad used to take me around his house and he used to go play with his zx80 and back then you got a magazine and you got about 300 lines of code and you had to just type them in letter by letter on this very difficult to use keyboard then you would hit run at the end, and that would be the game. It probably took you two hours to type the whole thing in. Wow! And often it wouldn't work. <laughs> I, know so, I was going to
0: say, was it fun?
2: <laughs> you know, you got to remember back then the idea of using a computer was like totally new. You know, the, the, the yeah. idea that you could bring something to life at all just by typing in words was just not a thing. You know, everything mm-hmm. else was you know this was pre-atari so yeah and he got one of those so i don't know if it was pre-atari but it was right back in that time so the mm-hmm. idea that you could do a program and then it wasn't long after that when the zx uh, spectrum rubber key keyboard came about that i started really playing games a lot and then we would like be pirating games off each other's friends by copying um, the tapes, the double <laughs> tape players, you know, all that way.
1: Oh dear! How piracy has changed over the years. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, exactly. So, but it allowed you to play a lot of games. So, yeah, that was uh, that was my early days. Just all all on the Spectrum.
1: So, did that get you? Obviously, your love for the Spectrum is that what slowly built up your passion for games and? Did you decide to make it a career at that point? Because I saw that you've obviously got a degree in applied physics. and
2: Yeah.
1: I mean, how did that come about? Did you, Were you always into physics? Was it a gaming-related decision?
2: No, I was just good at maths and physics. And so that's what steered. And I wanted to just stay in education because I didn't really know what I was going to do. I think a lot of people are like that. Mm. So it was safer just to stay in education. And the universities was like this inevitable next way of staying in education. And actually back then in the UK was like really good financially. Like the government paid for your university, they gave you grants towards university. So it was you know, it's much better than it is now. So I just carried on doing physics and I was just interested in maths and physics and this particular physics course had some programming and stuff in it as well. So it was it just seemed in tune with what I enjoyed to do. Mm. Uh, but I didn't. I didn't have a goal of becoming a physicist or an engineer or anything like that. I just had the goal of staying in education. It was been a bit undefined in terms of what my <laughs> game was. Going on.
0: But, but I had, I a had the opposite goal. I just wanted oh, to get cool. out of school as soon as I could and <laughs> <Yeah,
2: laughs> start doing
0: something. Yeah.
2: A friend of mine who I studied with, he was friends of the Gollop brothers who made the XCOM. Uh, yeah. <laughs> And in summer, he had a summer job with them to work with them. And I asked if I could do a bit of that in summer. So in my summer of my second year of university, throughout the summer, I worked for the Gollop Brothers on the XCOM Apocalypse at the time.
0: That's so cool.
2: What a and good we start w-
0: in the industry.
2: Yeah, I was really lucky. Just, it was just through knowing this friend. And we would make levels using their map editor for XCOM Apocalypse. And then it was time for me to go back at the end of the summer to uh, university. And Julian Gollop allowed me to carry on working from university, making maps. And I could send him them as the zip files and he would send me checks.
1: Oh, great.
2: Wow. So it was like this amazing university
1: job.
0: Yeah, that's like the dream.
1: No, yeah. it's pretty great. Because you went on to become like art director at Mythos, didn't you?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I was always kind of um, trying to look around for new
1: ways to do things, new
2: technologies and things like that, and always bossy. I was always bossy. (laughs) Whilst we were doing the levels for Apocalypse, I eventually became the head of the, the map editors. We had a whole bunch of guys doing it, and I ended up kind of being head of that sort of little group of people, just through being bossy and being good at organizing people. And then it moved kind of into a QA phase, so I became kind of the manager of the QA, and then that game finished. And when a new game starts, obviously it's a very different phase, you know, it's creative and, um, so there aren't any levels to make and there aren't any things to test and there aren't lots of testers required to boss around so i didn't have a lot to do at that stage so i decided to do some programming so julian had me and one of the other guys that we used to work together doing the maps and the testing we became programmers and we started a uh, magic and mayhem
1: oh do you remember that yeah that's crazy so you start so you just started that off as like how did that come about was that yeah Magic and mayhem. Yeah. It
2: well, I think what happened at the time was that
1: uh, Julian had gotten a
2: decent amount of, presumably money, I don't know the financial details, but a decent license fee for XCOM and sold that that intellectual property to, I think, Virgin at the time and got a deal to do his own game. So he decided to do Magic and Mayhem and he wanted to do it all with plasticine, you know, like morph-style plasticine. Yeah. To make it- <laughs> yeah. So we made this whole game where all of the characters in it were stop-frame animated plasticine. At the beginning of that game, whilst they were figuring out how to do the characters with plasticine, the cutscenes, and then they were doing a lot of the sprites. They were doing hand-painted watercolours onto um, paper, scanning that in with a scanner, and then we were using Photoshop to like cut out the white paper, and that would turn it into a sprite. That was obviously very time-consuming. So the artists were slowly creating all of that stuff. So in the meantime, we coded up the random map creator that put together all the all the worlds randomly. So every time you played the game, it was a different map. Mm. But then after that, we moved into a phase where they needed some special effects. And I was at the time I was learning three D Studio Max. So I said. I believe I can make the special effects really quickly and efficiently using 3D Studio. So, a lot of the special effects in that game are all mine from 3D Studio.
1: That's great. What did you enjoy the most out of that? Like, did you, because you you have like almost so many hats, like, even so early on in your career, from art, programming to special effects.
2: I think anybody who's used 3D Max or something like that for the first time, most people get that kind of wonder, almost like, "Oh, wow, well, I can be an artist." <laughs> of course, of course, later mm-hmm. on, I discovered that being an artist is is way more difficult than that, and I'm actually not a great artist, but I'm quite good technically. So, although I became the art director at, at Mythos Games the other artists in that team were the real artists the art direction didn't really come from me it was more I was organizing the artists and I was providing them tools by coding tools within 3d studio max to help them be more efficient I certainly wouldn't hold myself up as the art director even though that was my title
1: Mm. how did you find like you know, back then, even as art director, you like organising and by some things, it wasn't as, I don't know, hands on for want of the better phrase. How did you find your role affect the games though? Like what would you say or part of you influenced the games the most? And how did you see that once the games were released?
2: Well, I think in Mythos Games, I was always looking to try to influence the games a lot with just ideas I was forever nagging Julian with ideas and having arguments with him about we should do this that's not right that kind of thing so I was always like trying to look to influence the games but of course Julian was ultimately in charge of how XCOM and Magic and Mayhem evolved so throughout the career after that going to Climax and then and, and to Sony I always looked to have more influence over the games mm. myself At Climax, the goal was always to work towards becoming a game director so that I could have more creative control over the games myself as I gained confidence and experience at doing game development. The best games in terms of game direction whilst I was at Climax were the Silent Hill games, the two Silent Hill
1: games we did. Yeah, I can't play them because um, they're too scary, unfortunately. But um, <laughs> Luke um, is now
0: becoming known as someone who can't play scary games.
1: I really can't. No, generally, I really can't. I can't, um, especially the old ones. The old ones are so much worse than the new ones. Oh, yeah, System yeah. Shock era, the, yeah, Silent yeah. Hill. Well, the,
2: the original ones—they're they're really off the wall. Yeah, just strange games.
1: Yeah. yeah, I mean, but how was that? So you were at Mythos, obviously. Like, it almost sounds like. He- you it was at Mythos that you founded you got an idea of what you actually wanted to do in terms of becoming a game director actually having more creative control you went to Climax where you were there across two stints for almost 14 years and I know in between you were at Sony for a brief stint tell us about Climax though like and that journey
2: when I got to Climax they looked at my CV and I explained what I did. I said, oh, I've done a bit of art direction, a bit of coding tools for artists, a bit of managing these guys, a bit of level design, a bit of programming. And I think they were a bit confused about where to put me. And they said, you should be a producer, which I'm not sure if that was right. But I suddenly got offered a job as a producer. So I accepted the job because it sounded quite good, <laughs> but not entirely knowing what a producer does at that stage (laughs) even now it's uh, it's a struggle (laughs) to describe it (laughs) Um, (laughs) but back then it just sounded like uh, quite cool and it was off the back of me explaining all all the things I've done so I hoped that they were trying to fit me into the right role they assigned me to the biggest project at the time it was a large Japanese RPG it had a hundred people on it it was my first ever time producing. I had hundred people on it. It was first party for Microsoft. Oh wow. Xbox. Oh god. Uh, there was this enormous Japanese RPG. And on my first day of the job they gave me like these design documents and they were like three hundred pages long and there were mm-hmm. several of them.
0: This sounds what? like an actual nightmare.
2: Oh, it was. It was very <laughs> it was very scary. It <laughs> sounds you,
0: terrifying. They, More they terrifying you, than
2: Silent Hill. Oh God, yeah. They gave me this character document and it was a list of all the characters that were going to be in the game. And there was like a couple of hundred characters. It was like, it was mind-blowing for somebody who had just done Mm. what I'd done before. So then I was certainly questioning, what have I done? (laughs) And um, I just kind of muddled through really in those early stages. But I think that if we attempted that game now, we'd probably make a lot of different decisions. But we got the game launched I, always, I see it as a proud achievement to get that first game launched, considering it was such an ambitious project. It had a few things stacked against it at the time, and it still got launched, and it was okay, and I'm quite proud of some of the game mechanics in that game.
1: Mm. What
2: was the title? Sudeke, Sudeki, S-U-D-E-K-I.
1: And because that is crazy yeah. though, like hundreds going in with your first producer role, having a team it's because like, that was what back in two thousand and two? Back two thousand and one? Yeah, yeah. Like I that's a that, big yeah. title. That is a lot of people <laughs>
2: it's a big t- yeah.
1: You must have really impressed uh in your interview. Did you <laughs> in your interview I think
2: there's some that, circumstances your... involved? I think their previous producer was on the way out because presumably uh-huh. he'd, he'd worked out that it was gonna be a nightmare. I guess I just came through the door at the right time. Well,
0: uh, and you told them that you said I'm bossy and good at organizing people, and they said, "Yeah, I guess let's make him a producer." I don't know.
2: Yeah, exactly. We we need a bossy guy.
1: <laughs> Sude- oh, I don't know Sadeki. I've just seen. I've just seen it on Google, but um, I remember this. I remember the box art 100. percent But this got received really well.
2: Yeah, it's a good game.
1: Yeah, it was received really well. I remember at the time.
2: It's got a bunch of flaws, which, you know, mm-hmm. probably looking back, I wish we'd have done differently. But it was, at uh, the time, it was a four-player, multiplayer, real-time combat with spells and big, you know, summons, Japanese
1: RPG made from mm-hmm. Microsoft. You know, fairly really big title. Hey. That sounds great. So that was your first time, your first project. But obviously, you were there for a long time. Um, yeah. Your first thing was eight years. So how... What happened after that first project? How did the role grow and ultimately what happened when you came to leaving and going to Sony?
2: Well, what happened was we we kept a group of the team who worked on Sudeiki together and we slowly did other projects. And we tended to get put on projects that were in difficult situations. Over time, we got very good at kind of rescuing projects that were screwed. One of the projects that was screwed was Silent Hill Origins. It was signed in LA because Climax decided they were going to make a studio in LA, hired a load of guys. I think because they had an LA studio that helped them sign Silent Hill Origins, Konami had an LAO-based office at the time. But then they weren't delivering the project very well, so we then were brought in to try and help them solve it because it was going to get canned otherwise. Me and some other guys, we we kind of redesigned what they'd done so that it could be achieved in a short space of time and then finished that project, Origins. And then because we did a good job of that, Konami then said we could do another Silent Hill. And this time they gave us more reins to do what we really wanted to do. And so Silent Hill Shattered Memories on the Wii was... Much more our design. It was the first time we got to kind of really put a stamp on a game as a team. That game, we kind of did some ambitious things with like personality profiling. So, as you play that game, it measures the things you're looking at and how long you look at them and the choices you make. A lot of them are psychological choices. And then it kind of alters the game to suit your personality.
1: That's so cool. Wow. That's great. That's so innovative.
2: We'd use like the Myers-Briggs personality profiling system. So it would, if you, for example, looked at a poster of uh, alcohol, an alcohol advert within the game, an old torn alcohol advert poster, then this would tell us something about your personality. And if you spent a long period of time, if you looked at it and just looked away quickly or looked at it, hung on it to read the, le- the words and then moved away, that would, influence the rest of the game and later on you might get a cutscene, which it might have been a character that was coming very close to you and very intimate while singing a song or remained on the stage while singing the song depending on your personality whether you were introverted or not introverted
1: oh my god that's so cool I, have you seen anyone really copy that because I, I never see i see like obviously you get so many games have decisions and they affect and you have you know Branching paths and things like this, but I've never seen it done so subtly or heard of it done so. Subtly. Have you seen anyone copy that?
2: No, not at all. I still think it's really cool. I haven't seen anybody do it. It might be because it's not very commercial to do things that subtle. If the players don't notice them, then kind of what was the point? But obviously, we bigged it up as much as we could in the press so that players would know that it was happening. and There's a lot of points in the game where it's more obvious that you're making a choice. There are whole sequences where you're faced facing a psychiatrist and he's Mm. asking you awkward questions and you have to answer them by nodding with the Wiimote, yes or no. That's great.
0: It kind of introduces like a new conflict, right? Like instead of being player versus environment, it's kind of like player versus self.
2: Yeah, you versus your own mind. The ending of the game changed based on so characters change, various cutscenes, various elements of story and the ending all changed based on your personality.
1: That's so cool.
2: That's Even the monsters. Cool. The look of the monsters changed as well based on your personality.
0: If only Luke could play it, too scary for him. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. I
1: mean, uh, that is um <laughs> yeah. I I just can't I really can't do scary games. Um it's just frustrating because so many good games are scary. But least, yeah, that's the, uh, that's the curse I live with, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, so I mean, was that your favorite title during your time at Climax the first time? And was it after that title that you left and went to Sony? Was there something that happened that led to that move?
2: Yeah, well, at the time, uh, there was uh, Sam, who was the writer for the stuff we did on that Silent Hill. I'd been working with him for a long time, and he was a very talented guy, extremely talented. And we'd been working together for a long time. He was my lead designer. He had ambitions of his own to be a game director too, and it was just the right time that the next game we did together after Silent Hill that we wouldn't do the same game together, that he would get his chance to, to game direct. Whilst I was wrapping up Silent Hill, he did a great job on a pitch, and he managed to sign another game for um, Climax that he was beginning to have discussions with the publisher about, and so they were setting up a contract for that. So then, rather than be executive producer on that with Sam as the game director, it seemed like a sensible time for me to like try something different. At the time, just coincidentally, I was being tapped up by somebody to about this job in london and so i thought i'd go and just at least investigate it and that's how i got speaking to sony Mm. um they had a project that was in trouble and it seemed like the sort of thing i was good at going in and trying to solve you know projects that were in trouble so that's what i did
1: i love that i like that role of uh being the person It reminds me of pop fiction, Mr. Wolf.
2: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think what it is, is when you work on a game yourself, you're obviously absolutely passionate about the idea, otherwise you wouldn't have started it. And as a team, you get very into everything you're doing, and it's like your baby. And if it starts to run adrift or it, it gets into trouble, It's harder for you as the team to see that because you're right in bed with it, the whole thing. If you're new, you haven't been on that journey with that team, but somebody says to you, take a look at this game and tell me what the problems are. You can do it much more objectively. Mm. So you can sort of, you know, you can just go through you know, various factors like, you know, where do you think you are? How how long do you think you've got left? You know, what's the market for this game? What's your intended market? You know, and sometimes you can do all of that and some really obvious facts come to life.
1: Yeah, I guess you take that emotion out of it because that ultimately it's whenever you're creating a game, you are creating something based on what you think is best. I mean, I know you have a group of people who now obviously make that decision almost together, but often, like you said, you, that's why you want to become the director, to have greater influence over those creative decisions. Those decisions are still going to be made on a singular perspective of what you deem, or that individual who's creating the game deems to be a good experience. I think it's cool that they brought you in. What what was the title that Sony? If you don't, are you allowed to say what title it is that you they needed you to come and help with?
2: Yeah, I probably can't say. It was a title that ultimately was can we decided we decided that together. They'd been working on it for a while. We we worked on it up into a a demo point, a vertical slice, and then we discussed what was required to get this game to the appropriate quality that they wanted because they had this opinion that all games that Sony make should be of an extremely high quality and that does seem to be the case with Sony products. So we at the time I gave them a clearer view of how long it would take to get this thing, you know, done to the quality they were after. But this was this was a game for the move controller. Oh. So it was a game that you could only play with the move controller. It was a game that was a triple A sort of style approach to a move-based game. So automatically, one of the key things at the time was you automatically got this quite narrow market. Firstly, it has to be PlayStation exclusive and it has to be only players who have Move and the Move doesn't ship with the PlayStation. So the market's quite small, but then you want it to be A, ultra high quality, which automatically means pretty high budget. And those two things don't really match up you know your chances of getting commercial success aren't there so then it comes down to are you doing this as a lost leader to promote the move controller to try and get more people to purchase the move controller and that was never they could never really clearly decide those elements you know they just want a good game they just want high quality game so eventually i think After we went through a few stages, we've managed to pin down to the fact it wasn't possible to make it meet all of their goals.
1: Mm. Do you think that's one of the challenges that VR has in some... I mean, I know we've got like Half-Life. No, definitely.
2: No, definitely. I said as soon as VR came about, my own opinion was that we're we're Free Jam, not going to waste any time. Mm. doing any development. We were being sent VR kits and stuff. We so said, we're not going to waste any time on doing VR development, simply because of the market size. I think how many people are going to own VR kits? My own attitude to it was, there are going to be some absolutely killer apps for VR, some amazing experiences that you can have that you can't have not on VR. And I want to play those experiences But in terms of commercial success, I think that's a really limited thing because I don't think it's possible that VR can ever ever be properly mass market because mass market success relied in my head on you repeatedly going to buy new content for your VR so that people had an incentive to make new content for Mm. VR. And then everybody must have VR because there's loads of amazing content on there. And I couldn't see that road happening.
1: It's incredibly challenging. I think that's the thing at the moment as well. There are so many platforms like mobile. Obviously, you've got your consoles, PC, VR. Everyone wants a piece. And also, the even though there are more players now than ever before, so many of those players play the same genres or the same games like MOBAs, you know, Battle Royale titles. So the people who used to play things like, say, your D&D RPGs, like Icewind Dale, Baldur's Gate, things like this, they're a lot older now. And so they they haven't got the same amount of time to invest in those experiences. So it's almost like that player base doesn't ever really grow astronomically the same way that these other genres have.
2: There's always a room for success as a niche, you can obviously be a niche game for that market and still succeed because that market will be willing to pay a price for games for their market because they won't be able to get those products anywhere else. You don't have to be mass market to be successful. Mm -hmm. But I think as a platform, I couldn't see VR becoming mass market because I think also I think people are quite lazy when they're consuming entertainment. So the fact that you have to be physical, even just move your head to play those games yeah, is, t- is, is quite tiring. It requires quite a lot of energy. Whereas if you're just moving your thumbs, it's...
1: Yeah, and your it's, senses. It's, it's you have a lot more senses. I've played VR and I find it, like, yeah, literally emphasising your point, just exhausting after 40 minutes because all your senses seem to be almost hypersensitive to that environment because there is so much you have to absorb um then afterwards I'll take like the headset off I used to take the headset off and like be sweating on the
2: like flip side
1: of that though yeah I've got friends who absolutely love VR it's not their primary platform but it's the platform they enjoy the most so when a new title comes out for it they're like this is amazing so it is interesting I know Kaylee Really wants to chat to you about free jam. <laughs> I just want to ask one more question about Climax, uh, before, before if that's okay, Kaylee. I'm uh, yeah, go for I'm it, <laughs> but
2: it's okay.
1: I, I just, I know we went back to you, you went back to Climax after Sony, um, for yeah. a second stint. Just tell us about that second stint and what led to that. And I'm just curious because obviously, you went back there as game director from Sony. We do see that happen quite a lot, um, with going to a company and then going back to the previous company. Yeah.
2: I'd been at Sony for a year and we went through that project and eventually it terminated it. And then they asked me if I wanted to either work in a, a small section coming up with new ideas for games that they might undertake, which was an exciting idea, mm. or, or to work on the Wonderbook project, which also had some issues at the time. Was um, that the book you opened
1: and you had the magic eye and the eye? Yeah that's, that's it. Right. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah.
2: And at the time I'd been commuting from Portsmouth to London every day. And it was a uh, two and a quarter hour commute there and oh, back wow. every day. And it was really killing me. And um, we had planned originally to move at that time, but i just put a call in to my old boss, Simon, at Climax saying, hey, I'm, you know, I'm at this junction point at Sony. So I wondered whether you, what work you had. And Simon said, well, you can come back here, but um, you'll have to find your own work. And I was like, oh, <laughs> the commute was killing me. So anyway, I did come back and I was much happier, just purely from the commute. I really, really loved my time at Sony. And um, probably if it wasn't for the commute, I would have stayed there and um, so it was the community it was a great it's a great place to work but I also always loved working for Simon at Climax um, because he was always a great person and boss and mentor when I started at Climax so it was always nice it was a bit like Julian I've always loved Julian Gollop, and I'd always work for him again if you know it would always be nice to work with him again but so with Simon I, w- I was keen to just carry on working with him because I just got on with him so well Um, So I set about finding my own work. And part of that was just tinkering around with Unity, just coming up with ideas. We did a pitch for Minecraft where they wanted Minecraft on one of the handheld consoles. I think it was the Nintendo DS. And we made a little demo of it on the DS really quickly of Minecraft working on the DS. And this was at the time where EA and Microsoft were bidding for Minecraft. And I think, obviously, Microsoft won and eventually bought it all. But that got me, like, I really sort of studied Minecraft at the time. And like everybody, I was, like, amazed about this incredibly unique sort of experience and sandbox in general. So then I started tinkering around with um, Unity and the basic route i took was blocks putting blocks together but linking physics stuff together so it's like these blocks linked together with joints that could bring things to life and we eventually signed to that with disney and that became a game called imagineers using their imagineers brands it was these blocks you put together and you brought things to life and disney canned that project and at that point we had this amazing engine where you could build physics and machines out of blocks but we had our project canned by disney and so we we decided to form free jam and two five of us left our jobs at climax formed free jam and developed this block building game as a arena-based fighting game and that free jam formed, and we created Robocraft.
0: That was my next question. I wanted to hear about that exact <laughs> process, but uh, <laughs> you answered it for me. It's such a cool story to basically create something you love, and then say, "Well, I guess I'll find a way to bring this into existence." Has it been all roses and sunshine, or has it been? Have there been challenges?
2: It's been just a constant. RoboCraft was five years of absolute stress. Yeah. It was, it's because it kind of really, um, we were making this game and the first stress was we had it on a website and people were downloading it, but hardly anybody was playing it. Hmm. We thought it was special, but hardly anyone was playing it. So then over time, the guy that was paying us to make the game started to get a bit nervous that it wasn't going to be a success. And so the faith in it started to wane. So the stress point was us being worried about whether it was all just going to die away. And then eventually we built up enough. Uh, a YouTuber discovered the game. Uh, which was reasonably big, YouTube, and that just caused all of our servers to break for the first time. And then we put it on Steam, and then that went crazy on Steam, and the servers broke. So every day, like probably every five minutes, I would push a button on my phone to refresh this dashboard that told us how many players were online. Because the biggest indicator that was something wrong was the number of players online would suddenly drop. And we didn't have really clever monitoring systems and alerts and things like that, which we have now. So the way I would do it is just keep pinging my phone, refresh, refresh, refresh.
0: Like checking concurrent.
2: Players, concurrent players, and then concurrent players would suddenly drop, and I'd be on the phone to our CTO saying, "The servers are broke. Get them back up." At one point, we were getting fifty thousand new players a day. Jeez, that's crazy! And and we were like losing loads of them to servers being completely down because it couldn't handle the load. So that was extremely stressful. We
0: actually, we had Nick Smart, the founder of Brilliant Skies on a few weeks ago, and he said the same thing about the tipping point was sort of a YouTuber playing the game and having like a positive experience. And then that was the tipping point to get enough players, to have enough user generated content to make it interesting. It's a bit crazy how much that can influence the success or failure of a game.
2: Yeah. I think it was a really big deal early on in Robocraft, for sure. The other thing you noticed was that that first YouTuber spawns other YouTubers because they're they're quite integrated with each other. You know, they watch each other's channels, they keep an eye on each other, they're looking out for what's the next, say, big thing. So it caused a little bit of a waterfall. You know, there was this big Polish YouTuber and then suddenly a big – german youtuber suddenly a really big japanese youtuber and we had loads of japanese plus half of our audience were japanese after that for got, a while
1: you, you've got to take credit for that though because i influence marketing is like obviously it's an incredible resource um one done well but i think if their audiences didn't find the game interesting and didn't see the value and think god this actually looks great then it wouldn't have spread I mean, if it was a bad game, for example, I don't think their player base would have been sitting there thinking, oh, this is great. We want to see more of this content because often right. they, you know, these viewer bases, they, they're the ones who dictate what the influencers play because the influencers obviously make their revenue from having big yeah. audiences.
2: Absolutely. Obviously, we didn't know much about influencers at all at the time. We had students from the local university who would come and work with us. We would pay them. Each one we got from the local university because they spoke a different language. So one guy spoke Japanese, another guy spoke Portuguese. The goal was to get them to reach out to YouTubers in that language in the hope that they could tell them about our game and get them to cover our game. Not to pay them, just to try and convince them to play our game by um, talking to them. And so we you know, kind of developed this system for getting influencers to cover our game, which was we would find like the biggest YouTuber in that country that was appropriate to this kind of market. And then he obviously often had other YouTubers that he followed, but they were smaller than the big guy. We created like this spider web shape where you had the big guy in the middle and around him you have his smaller guys that he followed. And around each one of them, you had the smaller guys that they followed. And then we would try to get in contact with the small guys on the outsides. Because if you could get them to do videos, then the guys that were in the next tier up would notice and they were either easier to approach or they would do videos anyway. So I'm curious,
0: when you founded Free Jam, you said it was five people. I was trying to find an accurate number for how many people it is today Uh, regardless of the exact number, it seems like you have achieved a significant amount of growth. And I was sort of curious, obviously the culture probably when you first started was five people all looking in the same direction at the same time, working on the same thing. Sounds like you were already friends, colleagues, had this camaraderie. Has the culture changed with that growth and has it been hard to maintain that?
2: The culture has definitely changed because Oh, the other thing about the five of us we all have shared ownership of the company mm-hmm. so there's a natural thing there that you've got you obviously all have a shared desire to want it to succeed and when you hire somebody who is a game developer of course they have a desire to succeed and of course they want your company to succeed because in turn it helps them succeed but It's a different incentive than than the co-founders. So as we've hired employees, obviously some of those employees over the years have left as well, and, you know, there's always a certain amount of turnover, which, you know, we hope is not high at Free Jam, but it's, you know, there's some natural turnover. So what you find with, I don't know, I guess what you find with employees is just not the same. It's impossible to maintain the same sort of casual approach to organising teams. When there's just five of you, you get larger. So you have to use more sort of traditional game development solutions to managing teams, which has a different change to the culture as well. So you're using tools like Scrum and and Jira and Slack and things like that. And you have stand-up meetings every day and things like that, which we never did when there was just five of us. We were just shouting at each other.
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's the best way to work um Uh, at all points i want to like carry on talking about robocraft as well to be honest because obviously it's been a huge success i think you've had like almost 120,000 reviews on steam mostly positive but i just want to touch on your latest title which is gamecraft just because this is a tried concept gamecraft is about creating games within the engine you have created, essentially. I'm sure yeah. you could give a much more concise and articulate uh, explanation of the title itself and obviously what it yeah. involves. It's still, it's still a creative game. It's a sandbox. And at the same time, it's taking that additional step to give the player and the user even more tools to work with. And actually the end goal is to create a game within that environment. Yeah. What do you want that to achieve?
2: It's part of a journey ever since that original Disney-based block-building game, you see, because that original game for Imagineers was, yeah, you can put blocks together and build machines. But as soon as you develop that idea, it becomes reasonably limitless What the kinds of things that you could build with blocks, Mm. Um, and by linking them together. And what happened in Imagineers, we really struggled to define what was the game. What do you do? You can build all these amazing things, and it's actually fun to build all these amazing things. But why? Why am I building these things? What do I do? And back then, Imagineers, we would kind of developed it into a kind of puzzle game. It was very kind of besiege-like in a way. Before besiege, it was kind of besiege-like in that you had to overcome challenges by building a thing that could overcome it. Of course, that game didn't release. But when we got to Robocraft, we tried to solve the problem of why am I building, what's the objective, by saying you're building to fight, you're building machines to fight and kill other people's machines. Mm. But we've always been very interested in UGC and because it's just so rewarding to see players create things with the medium. It's almost like you're defining a medium to players and then you're trying to engage them by saying here's a new medium create within that medium the rewarding thing is when they do totally unexpected things with the versatile tools that you've made and we've always been interested in sticking to be a small company but a small company that has the potential to make really big games and one of the problems with like making huge games is content it's like um if you're AAA games, you know you might have nowadays up to a thousand developers, many of them be content creators, making AAA game content for say ten hours playthrough of a story or something like that. And we never wanted to compete at that level. We certainly we don't have the finances to compete at that level anyway. But we didn't want to do it that way we want to be able to be a small group of developers that have the potential even if it's only a small chance of making like really big game and that defined a couple of facts for us it meant that we have to firstly we have to have clear blue water from any other product it, we must be different because if we try to copy something else we'll just do it worse so we should do it differently and the other thing was that if we want it to be a big game and we want it to have lots of content perhaps we can find ways to engage the users to collaborate to create like an ecosystem that has infinite content and we've always been really fascinated by open like wikipedia the way The community of Wikipedia makes this encyclopedia that's just better than any other encyclopedia that ever (laughs) existed. And now all encyclopedias are obsolete just because Wikipedia
1: exists. Yeah. Do you think it'll be Um, able to get to that point? I mean, it sounds incredibly cool and ambitious.
2: Probably not, because its limitations clearly are because it's blocks. but. Mm. So you can't make any game because there is a natural limitation that comes with building things from blocks. But I think our key goal with GameCraft is to get to enable people to be able to make games that could never have made games before, but have always wanted to make games. But I think the BBC did a survey recently of kids. It was one of these news stories where they were talking about games aren't so bad for your kids after all because they get benefit from it in literacy and other elements. But one of the things they asked the children was, what did you want to do when you grow up? And four out of five said they wanted to design a game. And so... So, GameCraft is partly about tapping into. Literally, our goal is to enable kids from ten years upwards to be able to make
1: games—the games, the games mm. they've got in their heads. That's a great goal. That's a, yeah, yeah, that's really cool. I think they, I wish there was more people like you <laughs> making these <laughs> making these titles when I was a when I was a kid because um, it seemed like such a fantasy. And I think it's fantastic that like you guys have identified this and seen actually. This is what kids want to do, and that's trying to help them achieve that.
2: We've got quite a long way to go. It's not it's too complicated, game craft at the moment, because mm. you know, making games is fundamentally complicated, you know, three mm-hmm. D is a lot of layers to it. This is a journey we've been on partly since Imagineers and the Disney product as well. We kind of developed some theories about UGC. And one of them is that we have like this philosophy, it's like this graph where on one axis is the freedom that you have to create. At the top of that axis would be you can create anything. And at the bottom of that axis would be a game where you have no creativity, you just play the game. And um, on the other axis is the skill level required to access that creativity. And our ultimate aim is to maximise the freedom to create whilst at the same time minimizing the skill level required to access that freedom
1: that's incredibly challenging though
2: yeah that's a tricky goal
1: because those layers they're almost like for one of a better analogy it's almost like playing a game itself and the game getting progressively more difficult but the rewards becoming progressively better but it relies on You have to understand so many things. I think it's fantastic that you're doing that.
2: Here's the thing. Here's where where Wikipedia plays a role, right? Because Wikipedia is not a group of people that are being managed by a person to write articles. It's an open... They're all indirectly collaborating to make this encyclopedia, right? Every person Mm -hmm. who contributes understands a different piece of information. And this is true, can be true, of collaborating on games too. Like one guy might be, be... really good at making manga style characters another guy might be a great writer of stories and so our goal is to try to allow indirect collaboration by players being able to share parts of games that other players might put together in interesting ways rather than a person concocting an entire game from start to finish including all of the aesthetics the narrative the the game mechanics that's virtually impossible we're hoping to kind of stimulate this kind of indirect collaboration where players can create we've already gotten within the community like there's guy there's one guy that just likes making vehicles cars he just likes making cars from the real world some of them are quite boring cars like minis and, <laughs> and buses and stuff but everyone needs minis and buses in their games sure. right so, and he just likes making those. He has no desire to make a whole game on his own, but he does like making buses. But there's other guys in the community that are giving him likes and thanking him and, and giving him requests for the next vehicle because they want those vehicles in their game. He really benefits from that because he loves getting the appreciation from others in the community for what the work he's doing. And they're really appreciative of him for, for his unique skill at being able to make these car recreations.
1: That's so cool. Yeah, it really is. It's almost like a crowd source project that everyone actually gets to do the bit they want to do. Um, The
0: Wikipedia analogy really works. A good way to explain it.
1: With like obviously these titles, they've all got like a physics creative based element. Would you attribute that to your education in your, you know, quote, younger years has that influenced, do you think, the think type of projects you want to create?
2: Definitely influenced
1: it for sure.
2: Because myself, I'm not a literary person. So my ability to write like a deep narrative that was very emotional or um, deep in its own right, it, that is not one of my great skills. So I tend to focus on game mechanics and um, trying to innovate within ways to allow people to be creative. So that's just what's fascinated me as well. So I guess a little bit of the education has definitely influenced the types of games, for sure. A lot of other influences, like some of it's circumstance, you know, like, like what people do you have around you at the time that you're developing an idea? Some of it's the market, although less so, I would say, but the platforms and the market, because they very much steer what kind of games work as well. Like Often we were told, why aren't you putting RoboCraft on mobile? Mobile is going ballistic. Why aren't you putting it on mobile? And I was always like, I just think building robots on mobile is going to suck. Mm. and i don't want to do it (laughs) it's not that i don't want to like have the game on mobile and to have a success on mobile it's just that i can't imagine it being a nice experience because i love mobile some mobile games as well but i love those games that are designed specifically for mobile you know the unique experiences because they were made for mobile
1: have you thought about like um It goes into this weird environment, but having almost like a peripheral, not as like a core part of that experience, but peripheral for say RoboCraft and like GameCraft where someone could use like their Apple tablet and they could draw something on their tablet and actually appears in the game to help break down that barrier and also maybe make it so other people could contribute.
2: Uh, GameCraft, that would just be a distraction at the moment because our goal is still to get, like, at the moment it's too complicated to build games in GameCraft. So we're not going to achieve the goal of getting, say, the younger kids to be able to make the games that they've always dreamt of in their head that they want to make until we can solve some of those problems. So, like, if we spent time, like, thinking about complementary apps on mobiles, it would only distract from us solving that difficult problem, Mm. Whereas in the case of RoboCraft, where we were being successful, it was a stress because it always felt like we weren't being successful and we needed to move quickly in order to be successful. I don't think we properly knew that we were successful at the time. Of course, money was coming in, but we were always looking at the KPIs and going, they're not good enough. They're not good enough. We've got to do more. Yeah. Yeah. So we would like the idea of doing uh, a complimentary app at the time was, well, we haven't got it right on PC yet. So that's only going to distract us.
0: No, it's a good answer. Tackle one platform first and yeah, then get yeah. it right. I am curious. I had like three different questions that I think basically are all different ways of asking the same question, <laughs> which is like this model that you've created for RopoCraft, where it's community-led. And it's this continuing iterative process is going to result, I mean, just necessarily in heartbreak and happiness simultaneously, right? Like if you aren't releasing enough new updates, people feel like the game is getting stale. If you release an update, someone is going to think it's worse than it was before. It feels like such a tricky gamut to navigate.
2: In Robocraft, it was really tricky because yeah. you know, in, in Robocraft, a lot of players had built robots that they'd spent a lot of time on, say, hours, and they had tweaked and honed so that they were now winning in battle repeatedly. And sometimes they would do this in clans and as teams. And they had guys within the clans that were the best robot builders for the clan. So they would build the robots for everyone in the clan. And then you would. Tweak apart or change the balance, and unlike other games where maybe the guy with the shotgun's slightly weaker now and the guy with the chain gun is slightly stronger now, and so the meta's shifted a bit, but it kind of it doesn't mean that all the th- in Robocraft it meant all the things you've spent hours and hours building are now invalid, and you've got to build some new ones, and so the, the level of anger was quite <laughs> <laughs> quite significant. Yeah, in GameCraft, it's not quite the same. It's more akin to Unity developers. So in the case of Unity, say Unity will come out and they'll add a new feature and they'll make an old one obsolete. And they'll give you some warning that the old one's going to be obsolete, but you can use it for a while still. But you know whilst you're using it, it's still going to be obsolete one day and so most of the old games work and the new features come along and the new games that are made want to make use of the new features because they will allow them to make better games i think gamecraft's a bit more analogous to that than uh, in the case of robocraft we, we learn quite a lot from Robocraft. So we obviously we take more time to get certain things right in the first place when we change something we try to make sure it's backwards compatible so it doesn't break mm-hmm. stuff people have spent time making if we are going to break stuff we give them that kind of humanity uh, grace period where it's going to change but it still work the old way for a decent length of time
0: that's a smart way to navigate it because it is just such a tricky thing to navigate so i'm glad that it sounds like you guys have found a system for it
2: well, it's not even bug fixes. Like players will yeah. find find bugs, but that yeah. that bug happens to allow you to exploit something and allow you to – and because they want to be creative and they want to have their game be unique, they will exploit that bug in order to have a unique feature in their game. But then, of course, when you fix that bug, it breaks their game. So even those are tricky. Yeah. Even fixing bugs can break people's content.
1: Mm. That's so and funny. you're right.
0: There is such like an emotional attachment to something you've made versus just I used to be able to do this action in the game, and it did this, and now it does this.
2: And there are absolute quit moments where you will never return to play that game over again yeah. you know, if, if it's a big enough. So you get, we're very sensitive to that.
0: Yeah, that's a tricky one. But um, it sounds like you guys are navigating
2: it. Yeah, well, we t- we don't always get it right. We're certainly very aware of how much people care about the creations they've made. And obviously that's the kind of thing we want to encourage in the community, for people to really care about their creations and for people to give kudos to each other for their creations. Like We try to encourage the players, if they're going to use an element out of somebody else's game, they're going to credit them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that they give kudos to the other person too. And there is a culture in the community for that to happen, where they will pull each other up if it doesn't happen, you know.
1: What I'd love to know is, obviously, with all three of Free jam titles, they're all sandbox; they all focused on creativity. Where do you see the genre going?
2: Well, it's an interesting one because we decided a while ago that the ultimate expression of creativity within interactive creativity was making games. Because then, again, the definition of game can be very loose, right? you know where video say youtube is like a content platform where you watch videos made by average people rather than film developers then something like gamecraft or dreams or a product like that ultimately the potential long term is for there to be a platform like youtube which is interactive games made by average people and not full massive AAA game games studios mm-hmm. um, Probably one of the keys to that is to allow content creation to be made super accessible, where the mobile phone made video creation accessible for the masses. Game creation is still not accessible for the masses. It depends. I just think, you know, if it's sandbox and it's about being creative, the ultimate expression within games of being creative is games, because games can be anything, you know. In terms of it as as a genre, the more I delve into it, more it seems like it's kind of a very kind of split genre in terms of there's often there's sandboxy sort of toys that are short games that play on a specific sandbox feature. Like you can make uh, simulate boats that you can build yourself and they can be broken up and they're very realistic or or you can build um, like scrap mechanic or trail makers and games like that or you know or minecraft they all have their own kind of specific take on creativity and sandbox so it kind of very much depends on whether you're making a sandbox game that has a game attached to it or whether you're making a sandbox for the sake of it being a sandbox which perhaps say gary's mod is
1: Mm. That's so true, actually. Yeah, but what is the end goal of that sandbox? Like, I suppose people still need that guidance as to this has been created so you can create X. I, I think yeah. you're like, right.
2: Mario, Mario Maker is a great example of that. It's like this has been created for you to make Mario levels,
1: you know? Yeah. I think the challenge, you're right, though. The challenge isn't Mario Maker is a good example, Little Big Planet Dreams. They're like platform locks. And it would be good, maybe that's one of I mean, it's almost an impossible gate, but it would be a, a good gate to open, would be like a program where people can easily, like you said, like normal people yeah, there's have access to. Yeah, I think, I
2: think that's I think the that, challenge. I think that's really smart. I think Roblox has done that to some degree, and that you can use the Roblox editor to make games and then distribute onto all platforms and not be platform blocked mm. but the problem with the roadblocks as i see it anyway is that it doesn't solve the problem of accessibility it is still very much coding in not a dissimilar way to coding in unity you know it's complicated sure it's script and stuff like that but it's fundamentally coding and stuff mm. um, so I think they've done an incredible job of not platform locking you being creative, but it's they haven't necessarily solved the accessibility problem of making games. So if somebody can solve that long-term, then there's potential for creative sandboxy games to possibly even evolve into a YouTube-style platform. Mm. I
1: think that's such a good, that YouTube-style platform is such a good, a universal one is such a good end goal. In my head, I always think of these like like things like um, GameCraft, uh, Roblox. They're almost like a platform in themselves, but they need someone to create, not like a AAA experience, but an experience or a game that people will play. And they're like, God, this is so incredible. This has been made within this universe. Yeah. I'm going to stream about this game that's been made within GameCraft rather than just GameCraft because that's the same thing with VR, right? Like I think it almost does this full loop where it's like, you're almost creating a platform through software for people to have greater accessibilities, creating games. I can actually talk about this like for a long, <laughs> a long, long time <laughs> because it's something I really wish was about when I was growing up because uh, I think it's a great concept. I think it's a fantastic project, but I also I, I love the fact that the focus is on giving kids and, people who want to make games the opportunity to. I guess my final question for you is like kind of looping back actually to yourself kind of loops into obviously, you know, your, your passion for creating these experiences whereby people can create objects, experiences themselves. But do you have a singular highlight or an achievement that you've ach- something you've achieved that says, this is what I set out to achieve within my career or do you have an idea of what you want your legacy to be, or what you want that goal to be?
2: It's a bit of a weird question for me because I don't, don't. This idea of having a legacy or anything like that is just kind of beyond me, really. I just think, um, <laughs> it, 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 I just think, I don't really look back much. I'm just laser focused on making each game or everything that I'm working on a success. Cause I always just want to be successful. I still don't feel like I've really made the magnum opus yet, I'm still looking for that but uh, obviously I'm very proud of Sudeiki for its own achievement during that time, my career and obviously Silent Hill, both rescuing one and you know, making what the fans thought was one of the good ones, you know, in Shattered Memories. And then with Rovercraft, having 15 million players play a game that we created with just mm-hmm. five glass was like, I'll always be proud of that. But, yeah. Um, yeah. I don't, there's no like w- one moment to look back to because I'm always just, we are always looking for, we're always looking for what we see as the big success we
1: haven't had yet, you know. I think it's a great, um, great outlook.
0: Yeah, it's a good answer for I've done a lot of cool things and I'm going to do more. <laughs> it's a <good> yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it's been a pleasure. But you have
0: done a lot of cool things. Yeah, you have a lot to be proud of, and I think we're all watching for more.
1: Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Been, been on a journey, yeah. you know, from the, yeah, ZX, journey. from the ZX to actually where we go next with um, inspiring creativity in the next generation
2: the zerex 81 my granddad bought this big plastic box that you could plug in the back of it and it upgraded it from 1 kilobyte ram to 32 kilobyte ram oh wow <laughs> so it was, it was really a big upgrade
1: oh dear. it's crazy that that is um how far it's evolved but um
2: yeah,
1: yeah brilliant
0: yeah Mark, thank you so much for your time.
2: Yeah, thank you too.
0: Another episode in the books. Mark uh, Simmons was our guest this week from Free Jam. God, but he's been in the industry for so long.
1: Yeah, he's a cool guy. I, he's just—I loved that every question we asked, he gave us a story. He just gave us that context. Yeah, he just—he's on a level. He's just on a level. He's so
0: modest, though, too. Like at the end, where you're like, "What's been a highlight?" He basically was like. It, in like the sweetest, uh, most unobtrusive way possible, was like, "Well, I've done a lot of amazing
1: things." <laughs> <laughs> it was, yeah. he
0: has, Like he's done so many cool things from Mythos, I mean, Climax, and then founding Free Jam.
1: Yeah, and I love this Mr. Wolf that he's become. This guy who comes in and just basically he's known to like fix these projects and make them viable. He's incredibly innovative. What he did with Silent Hill um, on the Wii and what he's trying to create for Ejam. what he is creating. It's, yeah, it's fantastic to see. He's a, yeah, he's a legend.
0: He's a legend. Yeah. So one more legendary guest in the books, I guess. If you have a legendary guest, (laughs) (laughs) you can submit them at ptw.com slash the game dev show or email us at game dev show at ptw.com and everything we said on this episode reflects our views not necessarily the views of the companies that we work for i think that's it another that's week there. in
1: the books amen <laughs> gg
0: too <laughs> G-G. on that note
1: <laughs> maybe my sign off will be amen um
0: there you go <laughs> like that. Pastoral.
1: yeah uh, gg
0: gg
2: Game over.